The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we're going to talk about something that affects everyone and everything, climate change. It's the scary monster beating at the door behind every part of our wild world, urban, rural, and wilderness. By now, we all pretty much understand the big picture. Weather is shifting. Severe storms, severe drought, extreme storms and extreme costs, both in human and natural terms. The culprits seem amorphous, entities at the top of the heap, a shell game of names and products that have become part of our daily lexicon, a shifting sleight of hand that makes them almost invisible, a smokescreen blurring the connections as to how we, each of us, may unknowingly or unthinkingly or blindly contribute to the causes through the combined conglomeration of our daily choices. My guest today is climate mitigation ex- expert Richard Heady, author of the groundbreaking study Climate Majors, a first crucial step toward forward in tracing historic emissions and published in the journal Climate Change. Excuse me, climactic change. This study puts a face, as it will, to the monster behind the closet door. Today, we have the opportunity to wrap our minds around this complex issue, get a tangible understanding of the scale and the scope of the key players responsible for the majority of man-made emissions that influence Earth's changing climate. And furthermore, that as we move through our daily lives, asking how and why did we get here and what can I, a mere individual, do about it, each of us also play a key role in climate outcomes. So to help us with some answers, I'd like to welcome Richard Heady and thank you for being here today. It's my pleasure to spend some time with you, Ellie. Thank you. I am very excited about today's conversation. We have a lot of interesting information to cover, so I'm going to jump right in. Uh, a little background, Rick. You've been deeply involved in climate change and mitigation for over 30 years. You've published books and articles on energy efficiency and testified before Congress on energy policy. Your company, Climate Mitigation Services, conducts state-of-the-art emission inventory verifications, and mitigation strategies for local governments and consults to a wide variety of groups and NGOs. You are also the co-founder, director, and chief geographer of the nonprofit Climate Accountability Institute. So, 
Tell us in a nutshell, since I think you are qualified to do so as an expert, tell us in a nutshell, what is climate change and what are our biggest misconceptions when we hear about it? Well, thanks, Ellie. We all know that climate changes naturally. We have had ice ages and what are called interglacial warm periods for hundreds of thousands of years. And those are due to natural variations in the Earth's distance from the sun, the Earth wobbles around the sun, and the land masses collect ice and things cool into vast glacial periods. So we know very dramatic climatic changes that happen naturally from natural causes. But now comes humanity and our thirst for energy and the easy access to increasing amounts of fossil fuels buried deeply in the Earth from previous warm interglacials when there was a lot of vegetation and sea life and collected organic materials on land and in the oceans that eventually as they got buried um, provided us with vast resources of thick seams of coal at various depths and various locations around the earth as well as natural gas and oil that we're now producing prodigiously. So we can see the signature of increasing carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere as we have produced those carbon-containing fossil fuels. And we're now emitting 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide on an annual basis. And there are other greenhouse gases, as we call them, because the way they function is to retain more heat in the atmosphere. Just like we can envision a car getting hot sitting in the sun, hot enough to, to kill our dogs in our cars if we leave them in there and the car is closed, but the sun that comes into the car will warm the interior and the exterior is cold, just like outer space is. And as we add more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, the car becomes more efficient in retaining heat and it gets hotter and hotter, just like our atmosphere is doing now. So, this is, this is intense. Um, let's back up one second. So, this understanding that you've been studying for 30 years led to the publication called Climate Majors. How did you come up with that idea, and where did this climate trail lead you? Well, it started way back when in my early undergraduate days in the 70s, having just heard about global warming and climate change. And I was also studying energy infrastructure and where our resources were coming from. And I realized that the industries that benefit and profit from developing and marketing fossil fuels would want to retain their strangled hold on the world energy economy. And that has proven to be the case. And so 30, 40 years ago, I started working on energy policy issues and the impacts of climate change and what individual human beings could do about it. And several years ago, I was doing a project with a colleague in London to study the overall carbon emissions we could trace to one of the major oil and gas companies, namely ExxonMobil, over the history of its existence from its standard oil days. And... In, in the 1880s all the way to 2002 was my breadth of time. And we studied all the fossil fuels that they produced by year and analyzed how much of the carbon in those fossil fuels ended up in the atmosphere. So the focus really has been on not only each company's direct emissions from running its operations and pipelines and venting carbon dioxide from natural gas production 
carbon dioxide from flaring of natural gas in remote locations, as well as fugitive invented methane. Those are direct emissions. But we're also looking at how much of the carbon in the products that they sell can be attributed to its production of fossil fuels. So we looked at one company first about eight years ago, and then we wanted to expand it to the largest 90 or so entities responsible for most of the production of fossil fuels over all history and see how much of their fossil fuel production we can attribute to their production as well as what ended up in the atmosphere. This is fascinating. So um, how do, I have two questions here. One, you said you studied specific companies. How do you know that the warming, or you know, how, do, how can you trace specific CO2 emissions to a specific entity? For, for example, a major oil company like Shell or Chevron. Well, we, we've carefully documented, based mostly on these companies' own reported results of annual production of oil and gas and coal in some cases, and they have to report that to shareholders. That was part of the um, Securities and Exchange Commission when it was established in the early 1930s that companies had to carefully report and accurately report their total production by year. And we know how much carbon is in natural gas on a volumetric basis. We know how much carbon is in oil and oil products. And so it's not like we're tracing CO2 in the atmosphere back to the companies. It's, it's the other way around. We're estimating how much of the carbon in the products that they produce, refine, market, and distribute ends up in the atmosphere because we are deducting for fossil fuels that are used for what are called non-energy uses. Uh, and those are chiefly from liquid fuels that go into producing petrochemicals that, make, that are made into plastics that constitute asphalt and heavy oils that go into making asphalt and road oils. There are lubricants to lubricate all kinds of machinery. And so we deduct for those uses, but the majority of fossil fuels, whether it be coal or oil or natural gas, ends up be via end users, all us consumers, to be emitted as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Okay, so that brings me to another point. Your paper, Climate Majors, uh, when it broke the headlines in the UK Guardian, uh, the he- headline was, uh, let's see, new study traces two-thirds of industrial carbon emissions to just 90 institutions. So, um, and I've looked over your paper, Climate Majors, and read all the links, which uh, our listeners can find on Wild Eyes's uh, Our Wild World Facebook page, and through some links that we'll provide here, uh, climatemitigation.com, that's Rick's website, and uh, you can see some really cool graphics at carbonmajors.org, and then the methodology and the results of the climate Majors paper study is at climateaccountability.org backslash Clark Carbon underscore majors HTML. So if you can't find it on the online, please be sure to check with Wild Eyes and our Wild World Facebook and you'll find it. So two-thirds of industrial carbon emissions to just 90 institutions. Who are these institutions that are responsible? Well, the majority are investor-owned companies. 
situated, uh, and we all know them by brand names, ExxonMobil and Chevron and BP and Shell and, and all down the list. Many European companies, such as Total Energy in France, uh, BP and Shell are, are European-based, Oil in Norway, etc. So these are located around the globe. And we include investor-owned companies as well as what are called state-owned or national oil and gas companies such as Saudi Aramco and, of course, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, Pemex in Mexico, and various African and, and Asian countries have state-owned national oil and gas companies that produce vast amounts of oil and gas every year. So we divided it into companies and traced the emissions from the production of each of these companies. As I said, most of them, uh, over 80 are investor-owned or state-owned companies. And we've looked at their historic production of oil and gas and coal. And we'll talk about coal in a minute, but um, most of these companies issue annual reports on how much they've produced. So if we have a pretty good matrix and table of all the fossil fuel produced and how much of that ends up in the atmosphere. And it's not like we're attributing all the responsibility to the oil companies and gas companies and coal companies. We're just feeling like they share some of the responsibility and need to attend to helping to solve the problem. So what is – you bring up some, some really good points. Um, one, we're going to lay a little more foundation because there's uh, some information or some definitions that I'm not sure we're clear on. And two, okay. we're going to get into um, – what you were talking about, the products that they sell, which we as consumers purchase. So first off, what is, uh, to understand some of this, what we're talking about, there is a term called the global carbon budget. What does that mean and how does it relate to what we're talking about today? Well, that's a term that refers to what scientists consider is the maximum amount of fossil fuels and, and CO2 emissions that we can emit to the atmosphere if we want to not exceed a safe level of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And we're looking at it, taking a historic perspective and saying that about a trillion tons of carbon can be emitted from the beginning of the industrial use of fossil fuels to mid-century of this century without exceeding two degrees centigrade warming in the atmosphere. And we're, we already are approaching that. And since we have already produce, produced over half of a trillion tons of carbon, we're looking at the end of the game and having to devise a way to reduce emissions so that we don't exceed the, the one trillion ton total historic budget by mid-century. And that's a difficult task. And it involves carbon majors because not only do they have an historic emissions footprint on the atmosphere, but they hold proven recoverable reserves of fossil fuels that greatly exceed the remaining carbon budget that we're looking at, which is about 400 billion tons of carbon. Wow. So what can we do to hold not only these carbon majors, but our government accountable for the damage that they continue to generate? Well, nobody's being held accountable to date. We have international and domestic ways of dealing with it. Uh, my feeling is that international negotiations through the IPCC 
and the United Nations is not really firming up to a global agreement on how to reduce future CO2 emissions and methane emissions. It's sort of like we're shoving that to the back table thinking it's not going to work. So in, in talking about accountability and action, why didn't the U.S. sign the Kyoto Protocol? And how is it that we as a nation and a society continue to show by our actions that in supporting these climate changers that climate change is not our top priority? How do we go about turning that around? Well, scientists have been pretty clear for a long time that we have a, we have a good understanding of how climate change works and we need to act. Politicians uh, are subject to lobbyists and campaign contributions and, and other obstructions to what scientists would say is the need for urgent action. And so in the U.S. in particular, we were being much too cautious in terms of enacting domestic legislation to control emissions. And I think that's mostly attributable to the lobbying by the fossil fuel industry to make sure that no legislation that curbed their right to produce and market as much fossil fuels as they could would would happen. And so that derailed climate legislation in this country. The Europeans uh, have been much more forthright and effective at passing legislation to curb emissions and making commitments to do so. And the U.S. was was simply a laggard in that regard. But we've made headway. We have actually reduced our emissions dramatically over the last several years. How so? In, in, in attributable to what? We have a we have a, a little time before we need to take a break. So, um, give us how do we do this? The price of gasoline rose a few, rose a few years ago, and so that made consumers aware that it was more cost effective for them to buy more fuel efficient vehicles. The Obama administration passed pretty aggressive fuel economy standards that the U.S. car industry agreed to abide by. So that really helped. And the third reason is that. Emissions from coal-fired power plants and the price of coal became higher than the price of natural gas, which is a much cleaner fossil fuel. And so there was a great switch in this country for, for a lot of utilities to switch from coal-fired power plants to natural gas ones. And that was probably the, the biggest reason why U.S. emissions went down over the past couple of years. So you don't think it's just because people aren't buying less gas or driving less because the price is so high? Do you honestly think the majority of John and Jane Q public are making this connection between the price of gas at the pump, their car, and climate? You know, part of the key to solving a climate issue is to get the economics right. And we can talk more about that after the break. But the price of gasoline certainly curbs uh, individual driving habits, at least to some degree, and, and every bit helps. That's true. Besides making everybody angry, uh, I just hope they understand that connection. And instead of pointing fingers, and what we're going to talk about a little bit uh, later on in the show is instead of pointing fingers, what we can do and how we can take responsibility. So uh, stay with us. We're with Rick Heady, climate mitigation expert. His company is Climate Mitigation Services, and you can find uh, his website at climatemitigation.com. Another website 
website, carbonmajors.org, uh, and a full report of the study that we're talking about, Carbon Majors, at climateaccountability.org backslash carbon underscore majors html you can also find all these links on our wild world facebook page and rick heady's website and his background at carbonmajors.org stick with us we'll be right back after the break the internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. My guest today is Rick Heady, climate mitigation expert, and we're talking about who's responsible for climate change. Uh, Rick released a groundbreaking study called Carbon Majors, which outlined that two-thirds of uh, uh, industries or two-thirds of carbon emissions can be related down to 90 entities. Rick, I have a question for you. What's been, since the uh, headline in Breaking News, what's been the overall reaction? Action, uh, to your paper from the energy companies that are, are, are mentioned. Have they been defensive or cooperative? They have been neither. I, I, I think it's uh, not in their interest to really enter into a debate on this issue. They would rather have the issue go away. But we have uh, works in the progress, and, and eventually I think they will respond, and we hope they will respond favorably and positively. Uh, in terms of being part of the solution rather than just being on the sidelines profiting from from the climate demise that we're facing. 
Well, you make an interesting point that they wish it would go away. Uh, we can watch TV and, uh, you know, be in the middle of a natural, stunning natural history program and break away to commercial, and there it is. We're selling cars. So uh, we can see that they would not have an interest in making this go away, but we uh, citizens, people of Earth, uh, individuals do have an interest in making this go away. So, first off, why don't we? Why don't you tell us what will be the impacts of this continued warming on on us, our civilization, culture, and societies? What will be the difference as we know it today? Well, I think most of us, uh, at least in the United States, uh, and maybe some of your listeners can contribute from elsewhere in the world, but. I think we can experience climate change in our own lives in terms of shorter winter seasons up here in the north, uh, the increased severe storms that we see in terms of t- tornadoes in the United States, uh, hurricanes and severe weather and flooding. And that's part of the story about climate change is that the increase in the energy in the atmosphere makes more moisture available and more rapid rain and, and snowfall. Some areas will dry out and agriculture will have to adjust to having to shift to lower natural rain, uh, more storms, and then this unavoidable consequence of a warming atmosphere eventually warming the ocean, which we can also already scientifically detect by measurements. And it's a minor atmos- a temperature change, but even a minor change in the vast volume of the ocean increases its volume and that leads to sea level rise. And so for Three million kilometers of coastline around the world, we're going to be seeing two or two, three feet of sea level rise over the century. So we've been hearing this for quite some time. This leads into a really important question. We hear the term climate change. We hear the term global warming. Before we heard global cooling. And um, that leads to a lot of misconceptions. How do we wrap our minds around the scope of what this means, climate change, climate shift. Can you give us a little uh, definition of how that, that works out? Yeah, and some people refer to it as climate weirding as well because it's not all warming. Some of the basic uh, fundamental uh, changes in the atmosphere means warming of the atmosphere, which means more evaporation of water and warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor and clouds and rain. But um, I think the biggest misconception is that there's a huge and remaining scientific debate about the existence of climate change. And the science is pretty well settled on, on that question that we are facing global warming around the world and we will continue to do so. We've already baked in, as it were, a, a lot of climate change currently and into the into the future. But the misconception is that scientists are in total disagreement about whether climate change exists or not. That's not the case. The vast majority of scientists are quite clear and have written thousands of papers on climatic change. Now, skeptics, scientists, and otherwise don't publish a lot of peer-reviewed papers, but they're pretty loud in the public sphere about what amounts to denying the veracity of climatic change. But that isn't really at issue. The issue is is the details. It's hard to predict exactly how the climate is going to ch- going to change region by region. It's a very complicated system, and so we have a lot of details to work out. But that's how science works. There's debate. We make proposals about whether the 
cooling trend in the United States over this past winter. We've had some outbreaks of very deep cold, whether that's related to climate change or not. But um, And so those little minor issues can be debated and they can be uncertain for years, but the overall message of climate change is that it's happening and will continue to be. That's not a debate. So basically, we all have a stake in what's going on. The days of climate denying is over. Uh, we're feeling it all over the world. We see it in Africa, in wildlife, in terms of longer droughts, more severe rains, uh, longer distance between it, um, and here, right here at home with more severe storms. We could take this all the way back to Katrina. So it's, as Rick just said, it's not whether it's a belief system or, or not, or whether you want to believe in it or not, climate has shifted. So now we have to move from the point of what can we do. So each of us has to take ownership respons- responsibility and accountability by doing things different. So one of those things that we can support in terms of our government is government policies that will affect emissions from these entities. What are some of those policies? You mentioned cap and trade before, and I remember uh, a lot of brouhaha about that several years ago, but nothing ever seemed to come come out of it. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and and the policies that we as citizens could support? Well, you bring up an important point that the public needs to support effective legislation in each country that we live in. Some countries are progressive in that regard, and, and some countries are laggards, and I would count the United States among them on the climate front. But the United States has made um, pretty good progress on actually reducing emissions, even though the fossil fuel industry has opposed effective climate legislation. And that climate legislation can take a number of different routes. You mentioned cap and trade. That was defeated in the U.S. Congress some years ago. That was a predictable outcome, at least as far as I thought, because of the opposition by most of the oil and gas and coal industries. And they have effective sway in Congress. So So it's important on... There's a lot of money at stake. You mentioned economics earlier. So with these companies, these climate majors that uh, you, you can trace the most of the emissions to, this has a lot to do with economics. Can you um, – lobbying and our current system of politics. So in terms of economics and the power of the individual consumer, what can we do to shift this picture? Well, voting for the appropriate representatives and senators in Washington is a great first step. We need to be more aware of what our candidates think about climate change and how to deal with it. I think the winds are shifting. And over the next several years, I'm hoping that we will have more members of Congress who are cognizant of the threat to the way we want to live and preserve a livable planet for our children to vote in representatives that can represent a better planet for our children. And we also need to, of course, do that in our own lives, but we can discuss that in in another minute. So um, what I I just don't get is that we can continue to deny climate. We can continue to think that we're doing our bit by, you know, buying green or recyclables and things like that. But how – let's branch out because we've got some great amount of time. Let's branch out into the products that these companies uh, make. You mentioned it earlier. The Let's call it the umbrella of the climate majors, these mm. petrol companies, gas companies, cement companies. 
and their products. They seem to be sort of at the top of the heap. So when we look at TV advertising of all these products, how do these products that we're buying that line the grocery store shelves, how do they relate to and contribute to the climate majors and climate shifting? Well, the what the products the oil and gas and coal companies make are energy products that we're all consumers of. And so Peabody Energy and other coal companies in the U.S. will provide coal to electric utilities and, and some to industry that burns coal. And then we are consumers of the coal-fired electricity. Uh, and then we buy gasoline and we buy natural gas to heat our homes and heat our water. So we as consumers have a, have a lot to do. Uh, you mentioned products in the supermarket and everything that is made around the world has some component of fossil fuel energy input, either in their manufacture or their plastic components. And, and even food, of course, has an impact on the climate. So we can make wiser choices in our own personal lives about how we eat, where our products come from, if we're buying from companies that are aware of their role in climate change and being more efficient in their in their production of materials that and products that they sell us and choose more wisely in terms of the companies that we support. We can choose which oil and gas companies to buy our energy from, for, for example. And what my study does is to highlight the historic contribution of the oil and gas companies and we can choose if we wish to not buy fuel from the biggest historic contributors and the producers that have also spent the most money denying the existence of climate change. That's an excellent observation, and I've mentioned this before to my listeners on Our Wild World. We do have voting power with every cent we spend. So Rick mentioned that we have a lot to do. So the time for sitting back and thinking that this is someone else's problem, that quote-unquote they will solve it, that it belongs in the realm of silence, is no longer going to fly. We have to take responsibility. I did a show on single-use plastics and that plastics are important, but it's a petrochemical. So we have to make decisions on the best use of these uh, products that we do need and decide those products that we don't need. So, Rick, now that the data is out... Uh, climate studies, climate majors, uh, and your uh, organization, Climate Accountability Institute. Now that this data is out there, is there an opportunity to work collaboratively with these companies as um, representatives of states or nations or as individuals? We think there will be an opportunity over the next several years in helping to lay out a more reasonable plan that meets the expectations of shareholders of investor-owned oil and gas and coal companies, as well as the interest of the buying public and of investment advisors and the companies themselves in, in essentially laying out a plan where these companies contribute to the solution by uh, and a number of ways they can do that. They can, for example, invest more heavily in renewable energy sources themselves. They can reduce their own corporate emissions. And they can provide lower carbon energy solutions to the planet rather than 
developing all their proven recoverable reserves and maximizing their profit that way. I mean, that is counter to the global interest and the interest of our human population to have this go on much longer. We know, we can see the end of the road in terms of having to reduce total carbon emissions by 80% is what most scientists are, are estimating. Reducing emissions and fuel use by 80% by 2050. That is going to take the cooperation of oil and gas and coal companies themselves and not just consumers or national governments. They have to play a part. So if, if, if as we've talked about, that they're not interest, interested in doing this because of their economic bottom line and our political system the way it is right now and the lobbyists and the investments and the campaigns and the 1% and that a large proportion of the population feel they have no voice, um, what will be, you, you said, okay, 90, 80% by 2050. What will be, what will happen if, this, if we don't do this, if we don't start doing this now and take big steps, both as individuals and getting these companies to change their ways? What will happen? What is, what's the ugly picture? Well, climate, climate change will continue unabated. The costs and damages and the impacts of severe storms and sea level rise will continue. We'll end up with a society that asks itself in 2050 why we didn't act better and wisely and, and earlier on dealing with the issue. And we will have inherited a planet that we will, to a great extent, regret having caused. And so- in order to avoid having that regret, of course, there are reasons why we need to personally act as well as the corporations that I th- think share share in the responsibility of addressing the issue. So, folks, we really need to um, take this to heart, take it to soul, and put it in our mind and take action. Um, Twittering and Facebooking about it and just talking about it isn't going to cut it anymore. We have to take action. Um, I've talked about before on Our Wild World and with our guests that we are at the place in, in need of radical changes. So it's time to do these radical changes. If you look ahead to the future and see a picture, a very grim picture that you don't like, then it's time to start today to do something about it. So um, at that little moment, I'm just going to say again, you can find out more about Rick Heady uh, at his uh, website, carbonmajors.org or climateaccountability.org and find the uh, full results of his study, Carbon Majors, online and through Facebook and uh, our Wild World uh, Twitter page and Rick's website. So we're going to uh, take a short break. Please stick with us because we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what we, each of us as individuals, can do. Household tips to be cool citizens. Stick with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with Rick Heady, climate mitigation expert of um, Climate Accountability Institute, which is just turning into a nonprofit. And uh, Rick used to work with the Rocky Mountain Institute. And what did you do there, briefly? What What is the RMI? It's it's uh, by the way for our listeners, that's a local organization that's been around for a really long time. Uh, what do they do there? Well, it was founded by Amy and Hunter Lovins uh, about 30 years ago now, and they focus on using energy and other resources more efficiently so that we reduce things like carbon dioxide emissions and other impacts on the planet. So uh, what's their website, Rocky Mountain? RMI.org. That would be a good one for our listeners to look up because it's been going on for a really long time. Amazing people come in and out of the Rocky Mountain Institute. It is sort of an energy think tank. Uh, so it's an incredible place and very, feel very fortunate to have it right here so close to home. So they do, some, they do some fascinating work in, in water efficiency and electric efficiency and in transportation studies. And they help industries and other entities really think deeply and thoroughly about how to reduce their emissions and create and market products that make environmental sense. So this is a great resource for everybody. Um, so I'd say check it out along with Rick's websites. And uh, there's a paper, Rick, that you've created, and it's called Cool Citizens. Uh, and that's available. The full paper is available at climatemitigation.com. Uh, tell us about this. Well, that was uh, an effort I did. That was my last project at Rocky Mountain Institute some years ago to explain um, to the average homeowner in the United States how much the average home is responsible for in terms of carbon dioxide emissions and how they can address their energy inefficiency, both at very low cost and effectively at reducing emissions from their household. And some of those things... Or are free. It's just 
depends on changing our behavior and our normal way of, of doing things, such as simple things, such as not leaving the hot water running while we're washing dishes or, or, um, or brushing our teeth. Yeah, turning off lights and things that are free, turning down the, the thermostat on your water heater, for example. These things cost nothing, and they can save 10% on your energy bill for nothing. And what and about reduce your emissions along the way? And what about unplugging electrical items that you don't use? Does that work? It does. There are lots of phantom loads in the house. Um, there's the old black boxes that power our our gadgets. They consume one to three watts, and they're on all the time. So if they're not needed to power our equipment, they can be unplugged. So even when something says it's on standby, it's still burning energy. Yes, that's correct. Okay. We so can also do things like washing clothes in, in cold water. It doesn't cost anything. It makes our clothes last longer. We can air dry clothes in, in the summer, and that costs nothing as well. And also, isn't it um, a good idea to... I, I had heard uh, elsewhere in some energy studies to get a good idea of the peak times that your local energy company is running the majority of its, of its energy and low times. Is it better to take adva- advantage of um, non-peak times to do household chores like laundry? Well, it is for utilities uh, where they charge you more at peak because it costs the utilities more to, to generate or to import electricity at peak times. And so on utilities that offer lower rates in off-peak times, like at nighttime, those are, those are less expensive times to do energy-intensive things. So there's a lot of ways we as individuals can do our due diligence rather than leaving it up to someone else to think about for us. It's time for us to take responsibility. Uh, do a little due diligence. Check out uh, peak times, low times of your local uh, utilities company. And um, we've talked about some things that people can do to be more ener- energy efficient. And the free things. How, Rick, how do we incentivize, especially here in the modern culture where every Everything is buy, 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 produce, produce, to do, produce, do something. How do we incentivize people? Because it seems that the big picture of doom and gloom isn't quite enough to wake us up today. So how do we incentivize people to take action, to do this? What, what's in it for us? Well, what's in it for us is that we're leaving a planet that's in better shape to our children than when, when we are alive. So I think that's a good reason to pay attention to how we use energy and i think every one of us can think about how we can reduce our waste we're so used to wasting energy in this country just because energy is typically pretty cheap and really ought to cost more because i i think we should be paying the cost of the environmental impacts of using fossil fuels or water or other resources into the price that we pay for those commodities as opposed to have paying the cost down the road by our children. So we this sort pay of, the cost today. This sort of takes us into organic farming um, and buying organic produce at your local farmer's market versus the big box store or mm-hmm. chain store that um, you're paying for all the costs involved in producing these products as opposed to purchasing those things that are subsidized. One way or another, we're paying for those subsidies. And I'll mention corn and wheat. And uh, so big agro and big industrialized food products 
processing is using a lot of energy and resources when if we went a little more local, buy local, grow local, we could have a huge impact on um, our community's uh, carbon footprint, yes? That, that is true. Buying local tends to reduce energy inputs required to at least transport those commodities to market, and we're supporting more sustainable ways of doing agriculture and food production. But you mentioned subsidies, and carbon fuels are intensely subsidized around the world. In the United States, we spend about 20 to $30 billion a year mostly subsidizing fossil fuels and electricity. And globally, we spend over $500 billion a year subsidizing energy, which simply means that, we, that the price is lower than it really should be. We're paying the cost as taxpayers, and we overconsume and therefore over-emit carbon dioxide. And that's one of the things we need to change, is to desubsidize the energy sector. Okay, so help me understand and help our listeners understand, really, what does the term subsidy mean, and how, does, how, do, how are we paying for these subsidies? Well, they are a departure from the normal tax rates. And so if, a, if an oil and gas company drills a well, it will have a depletion allowance and faster ways of deducting the expenses of developing those resources uh, compared to the normal way of assigning and attributing taxes. And so they, in the end, are paying lower tax rates than conventional tax rates would suggest, and those are tax expenditures, and we make up the difference as taxpayers in terms of funding the national government. And so the products are cheaper than they otherwise would be, and not all subsidies go to fossil fuels. Some of them go to renewable energy in order to kind of paper over the difference. And and let's face it, carbon fuels tend to be cheaper on the market than renewable energy options. And so the national legislature has deemed it worthwhile to subsidize renewable energy as well, and so we end up with enormous subsidies for everything. So, um, everybody, I hope you're hearing that. The more we choose to non-subsidize these carbon majors, do what we can as individuals to reduce our carbon footprint, then and not purchase these products when a company can't sell its products then it's going to change to social pressure this is a societal issue so we don't need to continue to pay for this slick little greenwashing through um, subsidizing uh, carbon majors and our destroying our planet so Rick what are the um, what is the overarching goal of the carbon majors project what are your next steps we have a few minutes left, and I'd like to hear where this is going to go. Well, let me start by saying that oil and gas and coal companies provide vast benefits to society. Historically, they've provided the energy we've, we've used to develop and make our lives more comfortable and have better food and shelter and transportation. So it's not just a matter of assigning full responsibility to them. It's also to acknowledge that they've provided a vast, valuable service, but at this point, that service is becoming a threat to the survival, as we know it, of, of the human species. And we need to address the broader issue. And so we feel that accounting for their historic contribution of the major oil and gas and coal companies around the world will help leverage their participation 
in provide in helping to provide some of the solutions. And so we've done this historic assessment of the 90 carbon majors since and their fossil fuel production and emissions traceable to them since the mid 1800s to 2010. And that historic responsibility will hopefully leverage their attention to what they can do to help address the issue. And to bolster that effort to encourage their participation, we also are doing some research on modeling the temperature response and climate impact of their fossil fuel emissions. And we're working on detailing the quantity of carbon and likely emissions embodied in their proven reserves so that we can help educate investors and shareholders and the buying public in terms of what the companies they invest in hold in recoverable reserves of fossil fuels. Because not all of those fossil fuels can be produced if we want to protect the climate from exceeding 2 degrees centigrade warming. And so we need to help develop a plan on what kind of alternative energy systems to help to create and to come up with legislation and international agreements and understanding in part supported by investors who have an interest in making sure that the shares that they own in oil and gas companies are wise investments. If oil and gas companies cannot produce all of their proven reserves, then their share price will probably decline over time. So we understand that these carbon majors do provide valuable services that improve our lives. So that's an important thing to understand. But we also understand that uh, the results of these services do affect uh, people in places like Africa that are not the emitters of this. So it is our responsibility, as Rick was saying when he says we, it's not just the scientists that are coming up with these solutions, which is critically important, but it is we as citizens who support the legislation. We need to take responsibility and, as Rick said, to bring in those representatives that uh, follow along, that support uh, uh, changing uh, our, our usage of fossil fuel, providing more alternatives. So, Rick, um, we have a couple minutes left. What are the next steps that we can take away as a result of learning what you've taught us today? Well, you brought up the point about um, leaving, leaving some energy services for developing countries, and I think that's an important point. We have grown in the West exceedingly wealthy in part because of the energy from fossil fuels. And I think we have more of a responsibility as, <clears throat> as, I'm sorry, as wealthy individuals to do our part so that, <clears throat> so that people in developing countries can also have access to fossil fuels. And we have the wealth and the resources and skills to really do our part and, and an important account for our historic emissions as well as yielding some room to our developing brothers and sisters elsewhere so that they can reap the benefits of energy use and to help create a society where renewables and non-carbon fuels are the predominant forms of providing energy services that we need, especially in the developing countries. And we can do this, people. We can go back. Let's not even use go back. We can go forward to being less uh, 
consumptive, wiser use of our energy resources and support uh, better use by the companies that make that so that the other places that we do enjoy, such as Africa and the effects that climate change has on wildlife, which I've talked about previously on Our Wild World, so that we leave a world uh, not only for our future generations, but for ourselves tomorrow and our own survival. So to, I would like to thank Rick so much for being here today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm very pleased to have been here, Ellie. And once again, I'd like to let our listeners know that all links mentioned in today's program are posted on our Wild World Facebook page. And for more information, visit Rick's website at carbonmajors.org. The full report, Climate Majors, Methodology and Results, available online at climateaccountability.org backslash carbon underscore majors dot html. And as you step out into our wild world today, think about your carbon footprint and what you can do to reduce it. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 